So we started our exploration of this last week, the wedding at Cana. This is where our church gets its name from, this story. It's one of my favorite stories. And last week we focused on two concepts of time which are so important to this story and ultimately to our lives. We considered chronos, which we call defined as our time, and kairos, which we defined as God's time. And we learned that Jesus knew God's time was coming, but had, that he seemed to still be functioning on his time, in his time. This is why he said, my hour has not yet come. He's talking about that hour when he would start to perform signs of being the Messiah, but it wasn't there then. He was still functioning in his time, not God's time. And we realized that was very understandable because... God's time was that time when Jesus would reveal himself as the Messiah, which would put him firmly on the road to a cross. A road that led to betrayal by his best friends, torture, and ultimately death by crucifixion. So as a human, which Jesus perfectly was, it makes sense that he was not necessarily keen to get that process started. So he told his mother he was not going to get involved with the wine issue. But then before long, everything changed. He did get involved. God's time came crashing down on his time. He changed the water into wine. And it was the first sign that he was the Messiah. The first domino, if you will, was put into motion. And now there was no turning back. For Christ, there was no more Kronos time. There was only God's time. He was now firmly on the way to the cross. So, what happened? What happened that made Jesus go from his time to God's time? I believe the shorter answer is, that's who Jesus is. That's what it means to be Jesus. Right? But before we get to why I think that's the answer, we need to understand weddings at this time and place. For they were far different than our weddings today. Okay? They did not last a few hours like our weddings. From my studies, they lasted for seven days. All right, think about it. We're itching to get out of weddings at the third hour, maybe the fourth hour, and maybe the fifth. But seven days, weddings, honest. And the wedding and all the feasting and all the drinking and all the hospitality was all part of the contract that the two families made. Okay? The fathers of the groom and the bride made a contract at the time of betrothal. And part of that contract was the wedding celebration. Okay? This was a big deal. A ginormous deal. And if we insist on reading this story and thinking of our weddings, it's really hard to get to the deeper truths that are hidden here. Okay? This was not about, oh, you know, bragging rights and who can throw the best party and what bridesmaids have the prettiest dresses and, and who had the best food and who left the bar open longer and all that. That is not what this is about. This was a serious, serious obligation and a very serious responsibility. And the guest list was huge. It was basically the whole town. Everyone had to be invited. There's, there's similarities, I think, from what I studied about these weddings back then in this culture with weddings that I participated in in India when I was there. 
very similar things. They lasted many, many, many days. The entire town was, was part of what was going on. In fact, we were just with some friends, and she's Indian, but she grew up in Malaysia. And they went back to a wedding recently. Well, her father is one of Malaysia's like most important doctors, and his daughter was marrying the son of another important doctor. I kid you not. I'm not exaggerating. Not the actual wedding itself. The day before the wedding, there was a tent that held like 3,000 people that had been put up in the center of the town for the pre-wedding meal. The wedding itself was in a, was in a venue, like, a, uh, like the DCU Center. Thousands of people, it was the wedding. Then the day after, the bride's parents used the same venue for a day after party. Crazy. And this is all the responsibility of the family whose daughter is getting married. Okay? So, just huge. And all of these people, at this time and place, needed to be taken care of for seven days. And if some family member had moved away, it was the responsibility of the bride's family to bring that family <coughs> member back for the celebration. All right? So, does that start to help make sense that this is a big, big, big deal that's going on. And part of this responsibility would to have been would have been to not run out of wine. Not run out of wine. That's a huge part of this responsibility that was going on. Wine was, for the Jewish people at that time, extremely important at weddings and all celebrations, as their scriptures are filled with imagery of wine in its part in celebrations. This from Amos. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. That'll be a great day when that gets here. <laughs> and we're going to look much more at the imagery of wine and the importance to it in this celebration <coughs> next week. But for now, what is important to understand, this was not a minor inconvenience. And sometimes when we read this story from our culture and our perspective, it's like, oh God, we ran out of wine. That's like the open bar closing and turning into a cash bar, and you forgot to bring money. That's an inconvenience. This was, according to one scholar, a major breach of the demands of hospitality. And this scholar went on to suggest that a bride's family could take legal action for the groom's family's failure to the honor the contractual obligations of the marriage. Think about that. And at minimum, running out of wine would have been for both the groom's family and the newlywed couple a total disgrace with serious consequences. The rest of their lives, they would have been ridiculed, shunned, and made to feel worthless. This was a monumental failure to run out of wine. Okay? So with this background, hopefully now the story begins to open up for us. Questions like, why was this such a big deal? I used to wonder that when I was a kid. What's the big deal? God makes wine. That's sort of simple. Questions like, well, why was this his first miracle? Why, why did he choose to make wine at a wedding that was his first miracle? Well, these things start to, I think, start to open up, right? We begin to sense there's something important here. We begin to understand maybe why John introduced this story with the spectacular words on the third day, which we looked at last week. So now we can explore why Jesus moved from Kronos time, his time, to Kairos time, God's time. He knew that wine, that running out of wine 
what it would mean for this young couple and their families. So he had a decision to make. Does he remain on his timetable with his plans, or does he act then and there to meet the demands of the demands, the needs of others, sorry? And in the process, forego his time and embrace God's time. Well, Jesus loves others. Truly loves others. He doesn't just say he does. And it's not just a creed that he says he believes in. He truly loves others, so he acted. The wedding was saved, the failure was transformed. So I want you to think about this deeply. Many of us here today call ourselves Christians. Why? Why do we call ourselves Christians? What do we mean by that? In the original meaning of the word, it meant people who follow Christ. People who live like Christ. Not people who believe the right doctrine. It's not people who go to the correct church, but people who follow Jesus, who did what he did and lived the way he lived. People who believed in the kingdom Jesus spoke of and worked to make it a reality here on earth. That's what it meant to be a Christian then. So think about this story at Canaan. The first time that Jesus made himself known, even to his own disciples, was not according to his plans or his time. It was in response to real and important human need. So remember my short answer to... The question, what made Jesus go from his time to God's time? And I said, it's who Jesus is. Jesus was about loving God and loving others. Jesus was not about Jesus. He was about others. This wedding story is the beginning of his revelation of what it meant to be Jesus. Think about that. What it means to be the Messiah. What it means ultimately to be God. And this wedding story is the beginning of the revelation of what it means to be his follower. Jesus' first sign of his true identity was done in response to the human need around him. What it means to be Jesus is to love others. What it means to be his follower is to love others. And Jesus said that in so many ways. And the rest of the New Testament writers said it too. I'm not sure why the modern church has ignored that. And please don't miss the enormity of this by reducing the miracle to something it wasn't. I made reference to this already, but it's easy to read this and say, well, what's the big deal? He was gone. He, he was God. He turned water into wine. Who cares? I would have done that too if I was God. But wait a second. This miracle cost Jesus everything because it ultimately cost him his life. This was no careful calculation of 10% of his income. This was everything he had 
given freely to others. Who he was and what he had was not for him. It was always, always, and only for others. So, again I ask, why do we call ourselves Christians? Now, we have been studying the Corinthians for a couple years. <coughs> and one of the things I think we've learned in that study is they had trouble understanding what it meant to be Christian too, didn't they? I think we've seen that very clearly. Well, in more liturgical, more orthodox liturgical worship services, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is always read on the same day that the wedding at Cana is read. Chapter 12 we study, remember it was about the body, and Christians are all one, remember? It's a long time ago, I know, but some of you will remember. And right in the middle of chapter 12, Paul said, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In the entire chapter 12, that's all Paul was getting at. And they read that when they read the wedding of Cana. And that makes total sense. Now that we start to open up this parable. You see, the new Christians in Corinth were all pretty confused about what it meant to be like Christ. So many problems had crept into their community that we've looked at. Some bizarre things, some pretty immoral things, but mostly some very selfish things. It seemed the Corinthians had fallen back to their kindergarten days when everything was mine. The communion table in Corinth looked a lot like American culture. I'm sorry you don't have anything. I'm not sharing mine with you because mine's mine and I'm rich. And I'm not letting you poor eat, because I don't care that you're poor. Get a job. And that's how the Corinthians celebrated communion. And they called themselves Christians. James Liggett writes this about the Corinthians. They were saying things like, this gift is mine. This way of doing things is mine. This spirituality is mine. This special something is mine. What Paul says to them is what Jesus knew when the wine ran out at Cana. What you have is not for you. What you have is for others. To each is given something for the common good. That is a fundamental truth about the nature and purpose of God. Then and now, what you have is not for you. What you have is not even about you. I thought I was taking a break from Corinthians. I should have. Paul said this same thing when he said, right in the middle of chapter 10, seek not your own good, but the good of the other. And then at the end of chapter 13, which we just finished, Paul said, pursue love. Pursue love. Why do we call ourselves Christians? Jesus gave everything he had in loving others. That's the stuff of miracles. And everything we have is for others too. 
That is what is so incredible about the wedding at Cana. It is an invitation to live like Christ, to live lives of divine love. Like Trish prayed so beautifully this morning, we can't, it's so hard to fathom God's grace, but, but as he helps us fathom it, might we just give it to others? Just a little bit. The wedding at Cana story is an invitation to live lives of divine love. It's an invitation to realize that all we have is a gift and it is given us so that we can, in turn, spend it in loving others. So that we can be givers, so that we might build up, so that we might help those in need, so that we might be part of something greater than ourselves. So that we, like, so that we might love others without condition and without limit. And here's the thing. So, for those of you that had made it in, in in your seats and were able to watch the opening video this morning, it's a band called Snow Patrol, by the way, for those that are interested. The song was Just Say Yes. And one of the lines was, it's not a trick, it's just love. That's where it starts. And I find in my own life, and it might be true of you too, that I don't say yes to love. Oh, I teach it and preach it and talk about it up here, because that's my job. But I would continue to prefer defining my Christianity by the other things that are much easier and safer. Because I believe the right things. And I know the right theology, and I prefer to continue going on in my selfish life. And I don't even have a lot to be selfish about, but I'm still selfish about it. Because I don't say yes. That's where it begins. Just say yes. Yes, God, I believe this is the way. And here's the thing. We don't have to want to do this. And God's not sitting here waiting for us to feel good about it. I think that's sometimes been my biggest mistake in understanding my Christian faith. Is that I think God actually wants me to feel good about loving my enemies. Then I'll be able to do it. And the older I get to realize, I am never going to feel good about loving my enemies. I hate my enemies. That feels really good. <laughs> and then I was listening to this incredible pastor recently, and she was saying, yeah, and as long as we wait to feel good about it, we're never going to do it. And I was like, almost crying. I was like, that's it. That's where my theology's been wrong. It's about following my Lord. Saying yes, trusting that if I start to do it, it's going to be the way of life. And this is the good news that Jesus started to share at the wedding. 
to humanity lost in their own desires, in their own selfishness. And he said, hey, 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 you're not created to live lives like that. Because all that does is lead to lives of silent desperation. And I didn't create you for that. Your lives of possessiveness and jealousy and defensiveness and selfishness. I didn't create humanity to be like that. I created you to be free. And I'm here to show you what freedom means. And to give it to you. Because you're destroying yourselves when you live that way. And guess what? You're destroying everyone around you too. <coughs> and so what did he do? He revealed a better way. His way. He didn't want to jump on that road to the cross. No, Mary, I'm not involved. There's nothing to do with me. Leave me alone. And then maybe another day went by, or the third day, and he realized, this is really bad. These poor people, I, I have the gift. I have the ability to change their lives. I'm going to. Maybe it was in one of the quiet times of that seven-day celebration that he went off to be alone like he always did in the Gospels. To pray and say, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. And this is going to start that path of not interested. And in that quiet moment, maybe he heard God say, I know. I know, but that's what it means to be God. That's what it means to live life. Like he always did, he got off his knees, came back, and gave everything he had. Maybe we need to spend, maybe I need to spend more time on my knees just saying, being honest with God. I don't want to do this. But at least saying, yes, that is the way to live. Maybe that's where grace starts changing our lives by saying yes. Jesus revealed a life of giving, of helping, of loving. A life that ultimately is lived in abundance. Because when we sacrificially love others, when we love others with all that we have, here's what we're going to discover. We're going to look at this in detail next week. That instead of everything being gone, the jars are going to be filled to overflowing. Transformation comes to us, and redemption comes to the world around us. Thanks be to God.